It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. All right. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. My weekend homies, my extra fans, I'm absolutely delighted that you're joining with me and with Ed Freeman, a good friend of The Motley Fool. Ed first came up to The Motley Fool probably about eight or nine years ago, gave a free talk to our employees about stakeholder theory and conscious capitalism. Ed Freeman is a university professor of business administration at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. As I mentioned at the end of this week's podcast a few days ago, he's the nation's foremost scholar on stakeholder theory and business ethics. Now, the phrase stakeholder theory, that might not have a lot of sex appeal for a lot of us. I'm thinking that might sound like other theories, this kind of dull, slightly amorphous, abstract thing, but it's not at all. You're going to find out from my conversation with Ed, his lucid thinking about how to align the humanity that comes from every corner that makes a business happen on a daily basis from your leadership and your employees right through to your partners and suppliers and shareholders at the end, your customers, of course. Lining them all up is something that Ed Freeman, from his early work, coming out of others' work in the 60s and 70s, began first to articulate in the 80s, and now a few decades later, he is our nation's foremost scholar on the topic. I know you're going to enjoy this because you're going to get to hear about Ed's hero, who is the most influential person looking back on his life, people he admires. You're going to hear about how he grew up on a farm. He's a storyteller. He's a delight. Please enjoy this interview. Well, I first got to know Ed Freeman through conscious capitalism, as I've met so many wonderful people in the academic world, in the business world, and everything in between. Ed Freeman is a professor at Darden, the University of Virginia's business school. I know we've got some Darden grads and fans out there. And Ed, I do see that I'd forgotten this. Back in the day, your undergrad, Duke University. Do I have that right? That's right. Mildly troubling for at least <laughs> at least one of us as a as a Tar Heel, but um, oh, you're a Tar Heel. Yeah, I'm a Tar Heel. Now oh, we, well, we I won't be doing the rest of this. <laughs> <laughs> but Ed, your work in particular, thinking about stakeholders, was now looking backwards, visionary. Um, I think was it 1984 that you published your first book, first book on the, this topic. Yeah. And what was the title of that book? It's called Strategic Management: A Stakeholder Approach. A stakeholder. I didn't approach. call it uh, stakeholder man- management because I thought the idea was so simplistic. I couldn't imagine how anybody would ever find it controversial or anything other than just common sense. And yet, it came across as pretty original. And now we look back and we say Ed knew what he was talking about thirty years ago. More than that, what well, did you I- say in that book that you still believe today? Well, actually, most of it. I mean, every business creates value and sometimes destroys value for customers, suppliers, employees, communities, and people with the money. That's what business does. Uh, I thought the interesting idea in the book was how purpose and values shape how you do that. It was something I called in those days enterprise strategy. Um, but Evidently, no one else thought that was very interesting. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's one of those books uh, that was often cited and almost never read. Uh, I think maybe Raj was one of the few people that actually <laughs> read it. People said to me once, so what's it like to have written a business bestseller? Because it's like, you know, 30,000 citations or something. And I said, I don't know. They, they only printed 2,000 copies. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and a lot of those we gave away. So mm. there are either some worn out copies in a library somewhere <laughs> where the ink has rubbed off the pages they've been read so much, or as I suspect, most people just cite it and never read it. 
Well, it was a great framework that you put out, and now people look back and see your work and recognize where a lot of our thinking today started. I think I read in the last day or two that the most commonly cited academic work on Wikipedia, which apparently is linked about 2.8 million times, the authors of it were completely unaware of its popularity. So, Ed, you never know what, like, you know, who out there in Wikipedia land might be linking all of your work together. But I want you to link a little bit more of your work together for, for me and for our listeners. So, earlier when I talked about stakeholder orientation, and we know that is one of the four foundations of conscious capitalism, is that how you were seeing it back then? Uh, no, not really, David. I, I, look, I get way too much credit for this. The, the real pioneers of, of, of this idea were in the 60s and early 70s. People at Stanford Research Institute, Russell Acoff, Jim Imshoff, Ian Mitroff, they're all the offs, as we call them, uh, who really did a lot of this work uh, at Wharton as well. It was just in the air when I was there. <laughs> I, I saw it as trying to take it very seriously, not as a way to organize information, which is the way people did strategic planning in those days. But I saw it as, does it make sense to run a company based on this idea of creating value for stakeholders? And it seemed to me, again, I'm a philosopher by training. I never had a course in business. I grew up on a farm. Uh, it just seemed to me to be common sense that this is what you did. You, you had, and then I, you know, I read a bunch of stuff, and of course there's that famous Milton Friedman article uh, about um, maximizing shareholder yeah. value. And I just thought, well, look, even if you want to do that, even if that's all you care about, what are you going to do? You're going to have great products for customers. You're going to have suppliers who want to make you better. You want employees who, who show up every day and, and uh, are engaged. You want to be good citizens in the community. So if for nothing else, community doesn't do stupid stuff and prevent you from doing business. If you do those things, you might make money. And, and so that has always seemed to me to be kind of what – good business was. I mean, good, effective uh, businesses. Uh, and I, I just, I've never understood why that was controversial. I was called a socialist on the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal 13 years after I wrote this book <laughs> by someone who was not, how shall we put it, uh, burdened down with knowledge of what I had written. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I wake up some days, I think I'm the, I'm the last surviving capitalist on the face of the earth. Because what makes capitalism work? What, what, what makes all, you know, this, this equipment, Roger's phone, what makes those things work? It's the fact that we can invent vocabularies to solve our problems. Think about the vocabularies we've had to invent in order to get to a, a, a mobile phone. What's metal? How do we deal with glass? What's miniaturization? How do we build factories? I mean, the thousands of problems that we've, that we've invented vocabularies to solve. Mm. And we're able to cooperate together to do that. That's what human beings are. We're, we're language-using cooperators. That's built on connections. Built we on all love. made the iPhone. Yeah, I, I mean, in we, a sense we paid we Steve Jobs for it, and well, but, Apple shareholders are happy. But you're absolutely right. Everything around us. But that's, that's what true. that's what business is. And I think you know uh, one of the one of the reasons I'm I'm such a fan of the Motley Fool is you guys actually understand this, and you look for companies that put this stakeholder value equation together. And because we do this co cooperatively, the presumption is it's going to last over time. And that's what you look for. That's what real business is to me. Ed, one of those acronyms that I've come across in the past, 
um, is something that people talk about very seriously in business school and in the world at large. It's a big movement or almost industry on its own, corporate social responsibility, CSR. One of the things that surprised me initially when I kind of came into the conscious capitalism fold is that we're not necessarily all on board with CSR. And I wanted to hear, because you've written very seriously and thought very seriously about it, can you briefly kind of trace out what CSR is and maybe what it isn't? Sure. Well, uh, corporate social responsibility, uh, well, it's a very old idea. Uh, the academics usually trace it to a book by Bowen in the 50s. Uh, you had a big spurt of movements in the 60s, etc., around it. Um, in part, you could see it, as I did when I wrote my early book, as a something that's kind of bolted on to the uh, business is just about the money to make us feel better. Uh, I think the ideas of CSR are much more interesting today, and and that's really that's really an old idea. They're okay. much more integrated into what's the purpose of the firm, who are our stakeholders, what are we what are we trying mm -hmm. to do. So, I don't see it as antithetical to conscious capitalism. In fact, I think we need a bigger tent here. We need a mm -hmm. bigger tent that says, wait a minute, there are 40 of these things. There's CSR, there's inclusive capitalism, conscious capitalism, capitalism 2.0, responsible investing, impact investing, uh, social entrepreneurship, uh, you know, all, all those kinds of things. And we get too bound up in the, which is the right mm. one. Who's got the four ideas that are just right or the three tweaks or that sort of stuff? And it, it seems to me, if you step back from that, there's a large lesson staring us in the face. And the large lesson that's staring us in the face is the old narrative of business is broken. If 2007, 2008 didn't get your attention, I, I just don't know what 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 happens anybody who owns some shares it got our attention it got mine uh but the, there is a new narrative that's being written and i think it's less important it's probably heresy to say here i think it's less important whether it's conscious capitalism or inclusive capitalism or csr and more important to say look however that however that shakes out purpose is important you got to think about stakeholder relationships you got to think about their interdependence. Mm -hmm. You got to think about values and ethics because purpose isn't enough. I mean, Hitler had a purpose, uh, and so you got to think about those things. You got to think about business as being embedded in society, not only in terms of the physical world, but in terms of the social world. What business is not affected by government, by education, uh, by healthcare, uh, by things going on in other parts of, of the world? And you've got to understand that people are complicated. We're not these self-interest, short-term self-interested maximizers. <laughs> I mean, we do. We, there are some people who will absolutely only act in their short-term self-interest all the time. We call them sociopaths, and we sometimes elect them to office. <laughs> but for the most part, you know, we're pretty complicated creatures. And that needs to be at the center of the narrative of business, not what's there now, that it's just about the money. And I'm curious because obviously you are in and among millennials all the time. One of the things that we've found a hard nut to crack so far as a business at The Motley Fool is reaching that next generation, the largest generation ever born, and getting them to think about saving money 
yeah. and investing toward a purpose. The purpose might be to have more autonomy in your life, financial independence, using the stock market to do that, as opposed to maybe just cryptocurrency. So I'm curious, Ed, with those graduate students who are coming now, admittedly, they're coming to business school, so probably they have some clue here. But do you see a prevailing sentiment among them? What's your read on the kids that you're teaching these days? Well, I'm a little bit, uh, Dave, I'm a little bit of a millennial skeptic. And one of the reasons I'm a millennial skeptic, there are two reasons. One, I have three of them as children of my own. <laughs> uh, and I have a musician, an artist, and one who's saving the world. So, All right. Uh, uh, I, hope it, I hope it all succeeds for well, you. I, I, Sounds good to me. They're great kids. It's going to be a great world. Uh, the second uh, reason, uh, and there's a lot of variation, right? The second reason I'm a skeptic is people say, well, you know, millennials want, uh, yeah, the business students want good careers, but they want to do something that's meaningful. They want to do something that makes, makes a difference. Well, I don't know about you, but when I was 27, I wanted to do something that was meaningful as well. Uh, so I'm a little bit skeptical that there's a difference. I mean, who were the boomers, as a colleague of mine said the other day? She said, well, who were the boomers when they were 27? And the answer is hippies. <laughs> you know, so I, the generational stuff is, right. I think, Sometimes over overplayed. O- overplayed. But I think the one good thing you see, and I certainly see this in the students, is they're willing to talk about this. Whereas perhaps we were not, uh, the, the students today really want to talk about, yeah, I want to make money and I want to do something that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And putting that in the spotlight is what's the difference. If you go along with this idea that there's a, there's a new story being written of business, it's because we're putting it in the spotlight. Part of that's driven by the technology, uh, but part of it's driven by you know, some of the failures of uh, – Uh, of the past couple of decades. And I've gotten to meet you a couple times over the years. I've always enjoyed your viewpoint and some of the stories that you bring. And I just want to selfishly get into that a little bit here. Earlier this podcast, you said that you grew up on a farm. Can you just tell, paint the picture of Ed Freeman as, let's say, a (laughs) nine-year-old? Well, we had a farm in Georgia as a dirt farm. And uh, I think what we discovered was... uh, my father wasn't a very good farmer. Uh, I learned a lot from him, uh, but uh, you know, we tried dairy cows, we tried chickens. I especially hated the chickens. Uh, I think there was a brief foray with sheep, and of course, cotton and corn and peanuts uh, in central Georgia. Wow. None of it could, you know, did we really make make a living at? And eventually, uh, he had to leave and 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 get a job and that sort of stuff. And how old were you when that happened? Uh, I was in second grade. I was about yeah. six or seven. I mean, were you waking up at 5.30? and? No, my out? brother was. Uh, he, he was older, and he got to do the 4.30 dairy cow wake-up call. Thank God, by the time I was six, <laughs> we had polished off the dairy, and we couldn't, we couldn't do that. Then when my father started traveling, my mother uh, decided to give her something to do. Uh, she was going to have a dog business. So uh, from two pregnant chihuahuas one year, mm. w- turned into 64 dogs. Wow. And, uh, we, we redid the dairy barn into a dog kennel. <laughs> it was, Did it work? It was chaos. Man, it's, uh, <laughs> the one good thing about growing up on a farm was, um, you know, you had a lifelong drive to never end up there again. Mm. <laughs> Right. And so, yeah, you learned how to work hard and all that sort of stuff. It was, it was cool. It was not, it was not bad. Um, well, some people are cut out for it, and then most of the rest of us aren't. So when I was in grad school in philosophy, uh, one of the department chair had a little hobby farm 
Cape Girardeau, Missouri. We were in St. Louis. And the students would go down on the weekends with him and work on the farm. You know, and I don't, God knows what else they were doing down there. And, and they said to me, you know, you should come down there because you really know what you're doing. I'm going, I'm trying to get off the farm, not get back on it. (laughs) Now, Ed, you're a talented musician. How did you start that? Well, I I would leave the talented part out. Uh huh. I I played guitar for 50 years, and I started playing with these guys in a blues band, and I was the fifth best guitarist in the band, and so no (laughs) band needs five guitars. And so I sat down and played uh, keyboards, which I hadn't played really since I was 12. That was my, my first instrument. And then one of the guitar players sits down at the keyboards, and I become the second best keyboard player in the band. <laughs> and uh, I said to this guy, I said, man, why aren't you doing this for a living? You, you're a terrific musician. you got a perfect ear. You play all kinds of instruments. And he said, well, I grew up kind of hard in a place where I was told my chops just weren't good enough. I said, well, dude, who was in your neighborhood? <laughs> and he said, well, uh, Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder. Mm. And I said, "Well, you're not that good. <laughs> no, it's okay. You can play. You can play with us. But you know, you're not the. Sometimes grown, things grown are up, relative, aren't he'd they? Grown up in the middle of Detroit near, near Motown, and uh, <laughs> just didn't think he was that good. That's great. And who's somebody that you admire that I might have heard of before? Somebody that you think is maybe underrated, even though their name's out there. So I can't say your brother Tom, right? Definitely can't say. That. <laughs> That's one of the few ground rules of this podcast. <laughs> Tom's an admirable guy. We'll agree on that. Uh, you know, I I, I I think to inspire people, you have to be inspired. And maybe I inspire pretty easy. Uh, I got a chance to meet Roy Vagelos, who was the CEO uh, of Merck, when they uh, developed this uh, drug called Mectazan that cured river blindness and distributed it for free all over the world. I got a chance to meet, uh, before he won the Nobel Prize, Muhammad Yunus. Uh, and wow. I got a chance to be on a TV show, actually, uh, once with Jim Burke, who was the CEO of Johnson Johnson during the Extra Strength Tylenol people. Mm. You know, and all those folks, in addition to John Mackey and Kip Tindall, our friends here at Conscious Capitalism, who are inspiring to me. But probably the person that inspires me most is a woman no one's ever heard of uh, named Ruby Andrews, who's my grandmother. And in the middle of the Great Depression, her husband's killed in an industrial accident. Uh, they had nine or ten kids, the exact count I'm not sure mm. of. And she takes to the road selling shoes to make a living for the family. Uh, and I, I learned an awful lot about values and ethics uh, from my grandmother. And I, I decided, you know, I've been lucky to meet a lot of people who are inspiring but she looms the largest uh, in in my life as the matriarch of a of of a family that honestly I haven't kept up with very very much. But that idea of doing what you have to do for the family. And she also she lived in public housing in this little town in Georgia, and she would take in sewing from uh, white families and black families in the fifties. And boy, that just that kind of stuff wasn't done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I learned just an awful lot about what I would now say were questions of race and gender, and, and she continues to inspire me. Mm. Now, Ed, I know, because we talked about it beforehand, that both of us have kids. Yours are a little older than mine, but not that much. Mine are all in college or out now as well. And I'm wondering if we were talking to 
their peers right now, kids just a little bit younger, just entering university today, would you say that the average new entrant freshman at XYZ University should take a philosophy course or not? Well, that's interesting. I think that's an interesting question, David. Uh, uh, people ask me all the time, if you had it, I've only taught in business schools. I never had a business course. People ask me, <laughs> if you had it to do over again, what would you get your PhD in? And I say philosophy. Though it may well have been literature because it turns out the, the, a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in in philosophy was done by uh, my former co colleague Richard Rorty in comparative literature at, at Virginia. Okay. The humanities well done teaches you how to think. It, it teaches you about how to connect one story with the whole of human history. And I'm really very worried that we've forgotten about that. Hmm. So I teach courses in the business school around theater and literature and music mm -hmm. uh, because we need a humanities-based business curriculum that's not about how to manipulate people into doing stuff that's not really in their own best interest. Mm. When you ask business students to read Gatsby, uh, even though they all read it in high school, <laughs> it's a completely different experience mm. when they have conversations about that. So I, I really think that we need much more of the humanities. And the people who teach in the humanities have to get off this story that I've called the business sucked story. Mm. You know, we need to see business for what it is, how we create value together for each other. Some businesses really suck. Others don't. You know, and so this humanities idea is is central to business education, and I would hope, I think all my kids actually did do that, if for no other reason. Well, I don't think, I don't think Ben did. He went to uh, Berkeley School of Music, and I don't know that there were <laughs> philosophy courses, but we had our own philosophy course in the hot tub pretty much every night for a very long time. <laughs> well, I think any died in the wool rule breaker investing listener knows why I've had Ed on because Ed combining the humanities with a love of business these are sometimes odd bedfellows and deep passion for a better world starting from early days and inspirational figures in your life Ed and then you've shared it all back through so much of your work the academic part that nobody reads but um bing and, of course, all that influence that you've exerted, not just at the University of Virginia's Darden Business School, but through the Conscious Capitalism Movement, how we've gotten to meet you. So thank you for your work, Ed Freeman. Thanks, Dave. Now, Ed, I'm not going to ask you to make me a promise, but I'm going to say you said before you came on that you're thinking maybe about starting your own podcast. I'm not going to ask you to promise that you're going to do that, but I want you to know that if and when you do, I promise you that I'll definitely let all Rule Breaker Investing listeners know that Ed Freeman's got a new podcast if and when that sees the light of day. I sure hope it will. That's a deal, David. It's going to be called either the Stakeholder Podcast or it's going to be called something like Why Business People Ought to Read Literature. That's a terrible title, so it won't be called that. I like but, that one But it'll lot. be about that. Yeah. And hopefully I'll get you and Tom on. on as well. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it right there. Thank you again, Ed Freeman, for your extra time at the conference. Thank you, dear Rule Breaker, for spending some extra time with our show this weekend. Well, I should mention again that coming up next week, I've got CEO Salim Basul, who gave a stirring talk at the Conscious Capitalism Conference just a few days ago. And Salim's going to be joining me and talking about the business of his business and the business of life for him. And he is a visionary thinker 
and doer. And I'm really going to be pleased to share Salim with you. We're also going to be reviewing five stocks that I picked two years ago this month and see how five winners in a thinking world are doing. Can I keep the streak alive? See you Wednesday. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.